Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Um, my father is feeling a bit under the weather this week. He was traveling earlier uh, and is not feeling very well, so we want to lift him up in prayer and pray that he uh, is recovered and gets back to uh, teaching us the Torah each week. Um, but for this week, I'll have the, uh, the opportunity to teach uh, for the full hour. I'm, I'm very excited about that. A uh, quick announcement that we have that we want to share with you. Uh, we have here at Line of Land Ministries a Shavuot conference coming up June 2, 3, and 4. Uh, that's going to be here in Norman, Oklahoma. We have a very nice conference facility, and our registration is open for that right now. Uh, it's at ShavuotEvent.com. And we encourage you to uh, get registered, get signed up for that, bring your family. Uh, we're going to have children's programs and youth programs. Uh, me, along with uh, my friend Chris Knight, is going to be leading a good youth program uh, that we're expanding. Uh, with Camp Yeshua being sold out, we're excited to uh, expand that youth program there at our Shavuot event. So we encourage families, uh, teens to come and sign up for that. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Um, and then we'll have more announcements coming later for some of our other events uh, that are happening later this year. Um, so for right now, let us uh, join in uh, for Kiddush and the family blessings as we usher in the Sabbath. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kiddushanu Bemetzvotav Vetzivanu Lehad Lechner Shel Shabbat Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us the issue of the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bread. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. 
Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. And we do the blessings over the sons.
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohorat Echilot Of the Messiah, Baruch Atarunai, Elhenu Melech Alam, Asher Natan Lanu et Derech, Hayashua, but Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen.
And now the Veshamru. Veshamru Bnei Israel at Hashabat, Lasot et Hashabat, Ladortam, Berit Olam, Bnei Avayom, Bnei Israel, Odhit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashemayim, Vayet Haaretz, Avayom, Hashavi Ishabat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. Vashinantam lavanecha, v'tepardabam peshivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lektecha, v'derechu shakpika, uv'kumika. Ukershatam la oto yadecha, v'heyu la totvot b'inanecha, uchetavtam la mazuzo petecha, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
How great is our God Sing with me How great is our God And all we'll see How great How great is our God
be your name whose kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Hold your finger there at verse 2, where we will get our Torah portion underway. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing for the beginning of the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-Torah ha-amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Va'era, where it says, I appeared, and this is God speaking to Moses at this time, telling him how he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me give a little bit of backstory here. This is a continuation of what happened in last week's Torah portion. So to cover the material here, we need to go back and look and remind you of what was going on. Moses and Aaron had come to Pharaoh for the very first time. After Moses had received the charge to go before Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go through the burning bush, he goes, he meets up with his brother. They go before Pharaoh and he says, let the people go. Pharaoh says that I do not know this Lord that you're talking of that is asking to let the people go. So he will not let them go. And then he makes their bondage even worse, commanding them to make bricks without straw. And then what happens is then the children of Israel are bitter. Moses goes before the Lord in the last uh, verses of chapter 5. And he says, uh, Moses says to the Lord, Lord, why have you brought the troubles on this people? Why have you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Pretty brazen words for Moses speaking to the Lord, asking him, what, when are you going to do this? The thing is, is that in the previous passages, the Lord already spoke to Moses and said, this is what is going to happen. He already told Moses what was going to happen, that there was going to be a time in which Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and that he would not heed the words of Moses. So this was to be expected. Moses speaking to the Lord. In chronological studies that you can do, um, the best thing that I found um, in this situation is that when the first time that Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, that there was a passage of time before they went again to Pharaoh, that there might have been even as many as two years of waiting between the first time they approached Pharaoh and then when they approach him at the early parts of this tour portion here uh, that I'll get to in a little bit. One of the things you have to remember is that God had made a covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. And he said to Abraham that his descendants would sojourn in Egypt for 400 years. 
There was already a prophecy that was underway that was in place. And in next week's portion, we'll get into exactly some of those uh, year counts because in, in Exodus chapter 12, it will talk about the children of Israel and on the day that they leave Egypt, that, that there's a 430 year count that is fulfilled at that time. And we'll get into those day counts in next week's Torah portion. But what you have to remember here is that this is all happening in God's timing. There's a time and a place and a pl uh, plan for God to deliver his people. So there so for Moses to think that this deliverance was going to be immediate, there's still an understanding and a plan that God is waiting to fulfill. Let me now continue reading here uh, in, at the start of chapter six here in Exodus as this discussion with Lord, the Lord speaking to Moses as it continues. He says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, Lord or yod heh vav -Heh in the Hebrew, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. This is what's going on here. God is speaking to Moses and God has revealed to Moses the very name of God. Who he is with the name that not even Abraham, not even Isaac, not even Jacob knew God by that name. Yet they walked in faith, not knowing the name of God, following his by faith, what he, the promises he had given to them and fulfilled all the promises and, and the covenant that God made with them. Yet they didn't know his name. Why is it Moses here is questioning God? He's been given the name. Of God. He's been spoken to through the burning bush. Why is Moses questioning this? It's actually it's something that we can learn in our own faith today. Here in modern times, we have all the stories of old. We have all the scriptures. We have all the, the stories of, and the, of the fulfillment of prophecy and the works of Yeshua and all of these things. Yet in today, you almost would feel that today faith is more shaken today than it was in the time of Abraham. Why is that? It's almost a question for discussion of further study. Why is it that when we, we when more about God is revealed to us, do we then have a harder time believing in him? It's almost as if I think it's almost human nature that when as you learn or as you become to learn to know something that then suddenly it becomes uh, just a passing thought. It's no longer important to you whenever you're seeking after something. You have a zeal and a passion to learn about it, to want to know more about it and to have a faith in, in a conclusion or, or in a faith in learning something about um, a piece of knowledge. But once you have it, you then suddenly become lax in it. And that's something I want to encourage us today. And that's a little thought that you can just carry with you. You can discuss amongst yourselves that why is it that when we know all of these things about the Lord, yet we still question him? We need to have the faith like our father Abraham and maybe not as much as Moses in this circumstance, but faith in the Lord that even though we haven't seen certain miracles that we seek after those things so that we seek more to learn more about the father. Amen. 
The passage continues here as the Lord is speaking to Moses, where he said also that I remembered my covenant. That's the covenant I was talking about with Abraham that he made. And so there's a covenant that is still in process here through this entire um, situation with the children of Israel, Moses, and with the Egyptians. Now continuing here at verse 6 of chapter 6. Therefore the Lord said to the children of Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go. Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command For the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God is telling Moses to speak to the children of Israel to say, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And so that you might know that I am the one. One of the things that's going on here is that the whole purpose of the Exodus and Moses speaking to Pharaoh and the children of Israel is not necessarily... To free the children of Israel. If the goal of the Lord was to free the children of Israel from bondage, then by some miraculous work, blind all the Egyptians and the children of Israel will walk out. They'll leave if that is the purpose. But that is not the purpose. The purpose of all of this going on and of all these miracles and all of these things that are going to take, take place is so that the children of Israel might know the Lord. You just learned the Lord's name. What is the first thing you know about somebody if you say that you know somebody? You know their name. This is God introducing himself to the world. He'll start with the children of Israel and then through the process of everything that's going to happen to the Egyptians. He is introducing himself, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to the world. That's what's going on. Not necessarily the goal being to free the children of Israel, but so that the world might know the Lord. One of the other interesting parts of this passage is where God says to Moses and Aaron, he gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Um, This is a very interesting um, phrase that has actually confused some Bible scholars as to what exactly is this that he's giving a command to these people. Um, Some have speculated, some rabbis have speculated that, What he's actually doing is that he's speaking into the hearts of the children of Israel and into the heart of Pharaoh to heed the words that will be coming later. Because what will happen now is Moses and Aaron will go in before the before Pharaoh and the plagues will begin here uh, shortly in our passage. And that Pharaoh, who would who's the king of Egypt who would just summarily dismiss them from coming and approaching him at any period of time. God is actually speaking into into them to now hear the words of Moses. That's what it means, and what that was the speculation as to what it means when God is giving a command to the children of Israel. 
The passage that comes next is actually a curious passage. It seems a little out of place in our story. What begins in verse 14 of chapter 6 is a listing of more names. We are in the book of Shemot, after all. Starting with Reuben, and then the sons of Reuben, then going to Simeon and the sons of Simeon, then going to Levi and the sons of Levi, and then the genealogy of Levi all the way through to Aaron and Moses. It stops there. It doesn't go into all the other sons of of, uh, Jacob. It doesn't go into Judah and Dan and Naphtali and so forth. What it does do is it stops there and it begins to then list the family of Levi. His son, Kohath, which was the father of Amram, which was the father of Moses and Aaron. And what we have is we have a listing of the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Why? Why is that in our passage of scripture right now? Well, there's a couple of things going on. One. God and Moses are having a conversation. Moses is calling back to to the Lord and saying, I'm of uncircumcised lips. Why, Why am I the leader? Yet we have this now, this description speaking back to Moses. Moses, you've been called to lead these people. God has called you a son of Levi, a descendant of Levi, to be the leader. We have this listing of Reuben. We have this listing of Simeon. We have the firstborn of Jacob that all of these other men could have been called to be leaders of Israel. After all, they were of firstborn descendancy and all of these other men could have been leaders in Israel. But no, I have called you. I have called you, Moses, to be the leader. This is the genealogy. This is who could have led. But the Lord through the Lord has never worked with actually the firstborn. In all cases, you always had Isaac instead of Ishmael. You had Jacob instead of Esau. You had Joseph being called as opposed to any of his other firstborn brothers. So the Lord is working with not necessarily the firstborn. He is working with the anointed one who he has called. One of the other things that's going on here with this listing of these names also is that I also believe just in the previous passage where it said that Um, The Lord gave a command to the children of Israel to heed the words of Moses. What I actually could see here is that this is what Moses and Aaron would go back and tell the children of Israel. This is who we are. I am Aaron. I am the son of Amram and Yocheved. I am Moses, the son of Amram and Yocheved. And this is the genealogy. This is who I am. So to have this passage of scripture described is almost as if you're telling the children of Israel who these men, who these leaders are. In the household of God. It's interesting here in verse 26 where it says after it's described of the the family of Kohath and Amram and all of these uh, uh, people who are in the family of Israel. It says these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said bring out the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. They are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of of Israel from Egypt. They are the same Moses and Aaron. In the passage here, it's giving very clear distinction. This is who we're talking about. Let there be no question of a different Moses, a different Aaron. These are who the family, the people of Israel, I have called to be the leaders to bring out the children of Israel. You could see this as almost this is them selling themselves to the children of Israel. One other uh, thing of note that I noticed here 
that I don't know if it's been described as much, but when you look at the genealogies and the, and the descendants of the different children of Israel, um, I actually had never noticed this before, but Aaron's wife, the wife that Aaron had taken, um, was the sister of Nachshan, who actually is from the tribe of Judah. And so I'm sure there can be some further study here that the descendancy of the, Le- the Levitical priesthood, of all the high priests that came from Aaron, that the mother of all the high priests of Israel was from the tribe of Judah. So there's an interesting description there. In fact, I believe uh, Judaism has a, um, has a tradition that if there is no priest, uh, no Le- Levite available to do a priestly duty, whether it is to render a blessing or to do this, that the responsibility falls to a descendant from the tribe of Judah if there is no Levite present to do any of those duties. I don't know for sure if that comes from this genealogy here, um, but I thought found that very interesting. Uh, my middle name happens to be Nachshan, so it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb as I was reading the scripture. What we have now that continues here, after we've listed the family of Aaron, Moses, and their um, the exact uh, names and the family and the genealogy of their lives, What now continues is now, again, the Lord speaking to Moses, and this is what's going to now happen again. This is before they have approached Pharaoh for another time. Now let me continue reading here at verse 28 of chapter 6. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh the king of Egypt all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? The Lord said to Moses, so this is again another conversation of the Lord speaking to Moses. See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. This is almost God speaking to Moses very specifically saying, I have now made a miracle now that (laughs) Phosus... I've made that mistake before, actually saying Phosus instead of Pharaoh or Moses. Um, (laughs) Pharaoh will now see Moses. I did not do that on purpose. Pharaoh will now see Moses as a god that Moses approaches Pharaoh. That's very interesting. Again, that goes back to the possible theory of when God has given a command to Pharaoh. Pharaoh will now hear Moses. He will allow him to approach. Aaron will appear as his prophet. He will give an audience to Moses. Anytime that Moses wants to appear before Pharaoh, he has changed the heart of Pharaoh to accept him. That he has made him as a god in the eyes of Pharaoh. This is a miracle that I believe is undescribed as far as why was Moses and Aaron so able to always approach Pharaoh at any given moment in time. Well, here we have the passage of scripture that describes it. This is one of those hidden miracles. Maybe it's only one verse that doesn't get a lot of say so, but it appears the Lord already had changed the eyes of Pharaoh to see Moses and Aaron in a different light fascinating uh, miracle that has taken place in our scripture. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord 
When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them. So they did. And then Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So now what's going to happen is that Moses and Aaron are going to approach Pharaoh again. Remember when I said that there was a passage of time. This actually lends itself to that there was a period of time. It came to pass after a period of time that then Pharaoh will now see and hear Moses and Aaron as God and a prophet and that he will actually give them um, an audience to hear the words of the Lord. It also says very specifically that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Later on in this passage, as we go through the uh, um, as we go through the plagues, I'm going to point out a couple of times that this is always mentioned at the end of every plague. But it specifically says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. The first couple of plagues that we go through, Pharaoh will harden his own heart. But it's not until God himself hardens Pharaoh's heart is there a fulfillment of these words that God has spoken to Moses and Aaron. Also this, remember when I said that the whole goal of this exodus and this story was that so the children of Israel might know the Lord and that the whole world might know the Lord. Here in the previous passage, it said, let the children of Israel know I have brought them out of Egypt. In this passage here at the start of chapter 7, it says, so that Egypt might know that I am the Lord. There's two things going on here, but the end goal is still the same. One other thing I want to remind you of, the little bit of backstory of Egypt. If you remember at the end of Genesis, when Joseph was still alive and after the famine had taken place and the, all of the world came to buy grain. And it said that back in Genesis, the money had failed and that... Um, the people had to actually sell their land and sell their lives to Egypt. This goes back to describing the state of Egypt at this time is that Egypt is basically and Pharaoh is the owner of the known world. Anybody who needed food during that famine in the middle of it, the money failed. They had to sell themselves to Egypt. The entire known world is basically under the power of Pharaoh. So if we're going to have a time in which the Lord's going to introduce himself, it says to the Egyptians. But what in, in truth of fact is he's, sell, he's showing himself and making himself known to the entire known world at the time because of the great power that Egypt had come into. However, one of the things that's interesting about that passage is that Pharaoh owned everyone except for the priests of the various temples of Egypt, the priests of the pagan temples and, and all of, of all the Egyptian gods were not owned by Pharaoh. Their lives were their own. And as we go into and as we start describing the plagues, what you will now see is that the plagues themselves are judgments very much directed at the gods of Egypt so that there's almost like a special um, th there's a special introduction of God to these priests who think themselves free men, who think themselves even free from the control of Pharaoh, that these plagues will be directed right at them. And so we'll get into that more. And so I thought that was also interesting when you're thinking about how is the Lord introducing himself to the world and also to these priests who thought themselves free men out from the control of Pharaoh. So here we have the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron again, and now they are getting ready to go into Pharaoh for the second time. Now here reading at verse eight of chapter seven. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, 
saying, show a miracle for yourselves. You shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and it became as serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord has said. This is the scene that we see. In so many of our stories, whether it be the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or whatever it may be, where we see this scene, we've all kind of seen maybe a movie or a, or a made-for-TV movie of this, of this scene where the rod gets cast down and then becomes a snake. And then the Egyptians say, we can do that, and they do that. And then suddenly the snake swallows the other, uh, the other rods or snakes, as you will. And then the, rod become, the snake becomes a rod in Aaron's hand. Again, we've all kind of seen this story before. And what's often happened is that the first meeting with Pharaoh that happened in our previous Torah portion is always kind of combined with this one. That this is something that, as far as I can determine, there were two different meetings with Pharaoh. Some people believe it was all in the same and that the telling of the story is a little out of chronological order. But I do believe that there were two separate meetings here. One other thing that's always been fascinating to me is that, all right, Moses and Aaron are going before Pharaoh and we're going to show a miraculous sign that we have heard from the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So here we come. We're going to we're going to show the most miraculous sign that God has heard from us. So we're going to walk up. We're going to take a staff. We're going to put it down and it becomes a snake. Ta-da! Is that the greatest sign that God could have ever shown Pharaoh that is that, that he is all powerful God? I don't think so. You could, uh, I mean, I could start to, my, your imagination can run wild with the kind of miraculous signs. He can shoot fire out of his hand. He could levitate. He could, all of these other signs that would show that an almighty divine presence had spoken to Moses and Aaron. So what is this deal with this serpent? Why is this so significant here in the land of Egypt? Well, if you've ever seen anything on Egypt, documentaries, you've ever seen a picture of King Tut's tomb or whatever it might be, or Pharaoh, you might notice that the crown of Pharaoh and the crown of all the kings of Egypt, you know, was this big kind of draped thing. And there's a crown across the top. And then there's this little thing that kind of goes right up over the top. And what that is, is that is actually a cobra, an Egyptian cobra. And the thing is actually called the Ureus, uh, as described in, in the Greek, as that it is a serpent that is the symbol of royalty in Egypt. And in fact, I learned this on the Wikipedia article, so, you know, take that for what it is, that this symbol of this snake was the symbol in Egypt of divine authority. Egyptians thought Pharaoh was a god. They think all of their kings are gods, that they are some, you know, that they have been given divine authority. And this snake, serpent, cobra, whatever it may be, um, is a symbol of that. That they look at this symbol and this is that this is the sign of divine authority. So what does Moses and Aaron come to come and do? They walk in and suddenly they show a miraculous sign having to do with a serpent or a cobra that they are coming, according to the Egyptians, with a sign of divine authority. It's actually a very appropriate sign for them to come and show and speaking directly to the Egyptians 
that it is divine authority that has brought us to you to speak these words. Now, the magicians of Egypt, they have this little trick and they can do the same thing. Now, do you do we believe that the Egyptian sorcerers actually could do the miraculous thing of turning a wooden staff into a serpent? I believe that the Lord caused the caused Aaron's staff to literally be a be a piece of wood and then life is created and turns into a serpent and then it turns back into a wooden staff again. I believe God has the power to do that. Is that power and that magic trick, if you will, available also to the Egyptians? Was there, were they actually able to, uh, with sorcery and, and magic, create this thing? Possible. Anything is possible. But I've also heard that there's a trick in, the land, in India, actually, and in the Middle East, where they can, snake charmers can actually take serpents and cobras and doing a certain thing, either um, spinning them around to cause all the blood to rush into their head, causes them to become very stiff and docile and that you could have kind of the same effect, if you will, to be able to hold and charm a snake that has been made docile and it appears as a rod. Could this have been uh, the thing that the magicians of Egypt do. I actually tend to feel and believe deep down in my heart that the magicians of Egypt don't have any power of their own, nor do they have the ability to call on any of that power. I believe everything that they did was always a sleight of hand, was always a trick, uh, an illusion to which that they can show what kind of looks like the same thing, but in truth, of fact, is not exactly the same thing. They go to they go to Pharaoh and they're like, oh, that's just a trick. We can do the same thing. And Pharaoh, maybe not paying close attention, is just like, ah, it's just a parlor trick. When in truth, of fact, the power that Moses and Aaron possessed was truly from the creator of heaven and earth. Also, an interesting legend with this story here, where it says specifically that Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. It doesn't say that Aaron's snake swallowed the other snakes. It says that the rod swallowed the other rod. There's an interesting legend um, that uh, as we go through these plagues, let me just go ahead and say this, that there has so, been so much discussion over the plagues and these miracles that has happened as time has gone on that people that scientists have tried to say, well, it could happen. It could have happened this way or it maybe or, or there's no way it could have happened that way. Also, in rabbinical commentaries, there's legends that go back from uh, whether it's um, whether it's the rabbi saying this or other extra biblical texts that describe various other legends and miracles that uh, were associated with this. And I'm going to I'll cover a few of these things as we go through the plagues. Um, but needless to say, there's a lot of different stories and theories when it comes to these things. Now, getting back to this rod swallowing another rod, um, a, a rabbi's commentary actually said that what happened was that the um, that the rod became a snake, then the snake swallowed the other snakes, then the magicians of Egypt asked for their snakes back, to which they were returned to them, and then the rod of Aaron then swallowed the rods after he had, they had been given back to him. All sorts of interesting legends and things, but this, certainly the question remains, why in our scripture does it say the rod swallowed the other rod? Is it just a simple you know, wording, or was there some other amazing, more miraculous, God-divined thing that took place? Don't know, but it's always interesting to hear maybe some of the other additional commentaries and how some other people might describe these amazing miracles of the Bible.
So now starting at verse 14 of chapter 7 is now when we start to get into the plagues. The plagues of Egypt, there's going to be ten plagues. Our portion here uh, in Vaera is going to cover the first seven. And then uh, our next portion next week will cover the last three. And one of the things that's interesting about the plagues, before I get into it, there is a pattern to these plagues. And my father's described this before. That it's tr- actually not ten plagues. What it actually is, is it's three sets of three plagues with one special one at the end. And the one thing that distinguishes the different plagues from each other is that the first plague is going to be proclaimed to Pharaoh and the Egyptians at the River Nile. The second plague is going to be proclaimed to Pharaoh in the palace. And the third plague is not going to be proclaimed to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but it is instead just going to happen. And that same pattern will repeat with the fourth plague being at the River Nile, the fifth plague being at the palace, and the sixth plague being unannounced. And again with the seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues. So there is an interesting pattern here. Further discussion can always be had as to what is the pattern here of these three plagues. And um, many have always speculated that the way the judgments have fallen on Egypt in, the, um, in our book of Exodus is a pattern and a type and a shadow of the judgments that will happen to the world at the end of the age. And so maybe that pattern has something to do with that, Um, certainly for a longer period of study and time and midrash that that could be talked about. But for now, let us begin and go through our plagues and see exactly what happened here. And let's see if we can shine some light on some different theories and ideas on some of these plagues. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand at the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent you shall take in your hand and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, but you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with a rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish are in, that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. So the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod, stretch it out of your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And they shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them, and the Lord had said, and Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this, so all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. This is the amazing miracle of Water being turned to blood. And I already described um, in last week's passage that this was one of the uh, signs that God gave to Moses to prove and show that he is of divine authority coming from 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the ability to turn water into blood. And this has been mentioned so many times before that this directly parallels the first miracle of Yeshua who turned water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. And, um, and that there's a connection there and there's a, there's a pattern that because in Hebrews, uh, in a Hebrew line of thinking, blood and wine are considered the same and that they both represent life. So um, that parallel has been made many, many, many times before. But let's talk about really what was going on here is that the Egyptians no longer could drink the water. The, the river Nile, which was a god to the Egyptians, was the, watered the entire country of Egypt. That this was the source of all life, that they would gather water and they would water their families, their flocks, their crops. This was the source of all water. And God has just now turned it to blood. For seven days. So they struggled to drink water. Now the question I was set, had was that even the uh, pools of water they had and in pitchers of wood and stone, that it was all turned to blood. This was all any water they had collected before. It too was turned to blood. So anytime that a scientific theory has happened to where, well, what happened was the staff stirred up red algae in the River Nile and became, and that's what caused the, the Nile to turn red as blood, not that it was blood, but that would never explain how the water in various other pitchers and pools and things all turned to blood. So scientific explanation struggles to maintain any to uh have any of their arguments hold water, if you will, pun intended, that would describe how the water would have turned to blood. Now, the magicians, the um, I always want to say the magicians because it's the magicians of Egypt, I should say, um, they were able to replicate the same thing. Again, my theory is that there's, this was a sleight of hand on their part because you can take a red powder, a very small amount of it, in the bottom of a pitcher, you can pour water into it, suddenly that entire water turns red. You can do it this with your kids at home with black cherry Kool-Aid and cause it to turn what appears to turn water into wine. Amazing miracle. I believe that the magicians of Egypt Again, this was just a sleight of hand, a little trick that they could do the same thing. However, we know that there's no way they could have actually replicated this entire miracle of all the water of Egypt turning to blood. This is the first thing that will begin the plagues that as we go through the plagues, we'll learn more and more about the incredible destruction that took place in Egypt during the course of these plagues. That it will begin with simply water. One of the very most simple needs of life that someone would need to live, that your water will become judged. If you suddenly can't have water, you suddenly go into a panic. You might still have your food, you might still have your home, your family, but that's one thing that should be strong enough to cause someone to, to stop and wonder what is going on here. Now, were they able to be without true water for seven days? Well, it does say that they were able to dig around the river. They dug around the river and maybe they were able to find small pockets of still fresh water somewhere around the river. Because we all know that somebody can't live without water for seven days. Truly, without any water for seven days, and you will die. Dehydration will set in in two days, and in four days, your body pretty much starts to shut down. So I believe they were still able to acquire um, small amounts of water just to preserve life. Because God here is not trying to kill all the Egyptians. He's trying to make himself known to the Egyptians. Amen? The second plague begins here at chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses again. Go to Pharaoh to him. 
Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your territory with frogs so that the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into your houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on the on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. And he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people, that they shall in, remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Here's the second plague, the plague of frogs. One of the things that I uh, always think about here whenever uh, we read about the plague of frogs is I always thank the Lord for my wonderful wife, Lauren, who is not someone who gets the eebie-jeebies when something like a frog or a bug comes around. Um, There's a funny story in my household when actually there was a big spider in the middle of our living room that it was a big giant wolf spider and it was a female with a bunch of little babies on its back and i was about to smash it and lauren was like no wait and i was like i was like what what and she's all like it's it's got a ton of babies we have to like take care of it and i was like well let me just take it out and i'll smash it out there and she was like no let's just let's just take it out and 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 just let it go that kind of thing she actually had compassion for this giant wolf spider with a ton of babies on its back Maybe different from some other uh, of your men, some of your wives might have stories of where if they see a spider, they're jumping up on the counter and screaming like a little girl, if you will, until you take care of the problem. Spiders, bugs has the ability to do this. Also, frogs has a tendency to do this as well. If you see a frog out there, you're like, don't touch it or or it might scare some people. My kids are, are crazy. They will come up with the frog like we found a frog, a toad and something. They, they love it. They, they could care less. So I always every time I think about the plague of frogs, I thank the Lord for my wonderful wife who who doesn't panic in those situations. However, I am aware of many other people, friends that I know that do panic in that situation. When you have something like frogs coming up and they see one or more of them, and when you're talking about this plague that showed up in their kneading bowls and their ovens and their beds and all of these things, certainly a thing of, of fear, of discomfort, of being, frankly, grossed out in this situation. Now, again, all of these judgments were upon the gods of Egypt. Frogs were considered a god in the land of Egypt. There's many different depictions of them uh, in um, Uh, um, archaeological discoveries in Egypt. So frogs had this very uh, prominent place in Egypt. Now, 
Let's talk about how this could have happened. Science wants to describe that the frogs came up out possibly as a result of the blood in the River Nile. That it would have caused all the frogs that might have been in the, in the rivers if the water suddenly became in, uninhabitable. They then came up out and that's how they showed up. Also, they describe there could have been a climate change or something that would have caused this to happen. Regardless, I believe that, again, this is a miracle. We're talking about the ability of God here to create these things. There's another legend to do with the frogs that someone said that the water of Egypt, after the water had been turned to blood, that the water that then had been collected after the seven days after the blood was gone, the water itself became frogs. That they, would, that they brought the water into their homes, that they brought in a, a, a bucket, of, a pitcher of water into their home, and then suddenly the water became frogs. That was another interesting legend associated with this. They even said that the perspiration as they slept in their beds, that the water droplets became small frogs. Again, so many of these stories and legends that can be associated with these things that you can go all the way far to one side or the other. You can scientifically try to explain it away or you can imagine some fantastical legend to do with it. I like to try and stay somewhere down the middle where we just trust that we see what the Lord is doing. He's judging the Egyptians and he's letting us know and making himself known to the Egyptians. But it's always interesting to see how some scientific documentary will try to describe how these things could have physically happened as well as the legends and stories. And so knowing all of those things. Uh, again, we always are taking the words of the Lord and the miracles and stories of the Lord and we try to attach our imagination to them and we try to think about them how they could have really happened or what else could have happened associated with it and so i don't know if there's anything necessarily truly wrong with that however i believe we need to stay focused on the miracles of the lord and what the lord is truly trying to say to us and teach us through these stories amen the third plague here, my um, New King James here describes and translates this next plague as lice. Many other translations describe it as gnats. Now, in doing some of the study that I've done, um, lice is actually a little bit more of a better uh, translation of this um, of the, this um, plague, which is called kinim. And so, some people say gnats, some people say lice. Now, if it was gnats. Uh, one of us, we've all seen this little swarm of gnats around a, uh, around a uh, porch light or something like that. And you might walk through them and just be like, it's kind of an annoyance. But again, you don't get as worried about gnats. Worst thing that they can do is just kind of buzz in your ear and just like right in your ear. Doesn't feel very good. It usually startles you, but it's not this horrible thing. If this plague actually is lice, however, any mom that has had a child that has gotten lice realizes how worse this actually may have been should it be lice the description is very short here in our scripture starting in um verse uh, 16 it says the lord said to moses say to aaron stretch out your rod strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout the land of egypt and they did so aaron stretched out his hand with a rod and struck the dust of the earth it became lice on man and beast all the dust of the land became lice throughout the land of egypt now, the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. 
So, here we have the judgment of lice. It says in the scripture specifically, all the dust of the land became lice. That lice came up out of the dirt, the dust, the land, the earth, and suddenly there was an infestation of lice. Once lice gets in your hair, in, in an animal's hair, very difficult to remove. Very difficult. In today's uh, modern technology, we have shampoos and we have different combs that could that help you to remove lice uh, should a child ever get lice in their hair, but still very difficult. In ancient times, this was probably nigh impossible to remove, that somebody would have to be probably bathed for days to try and remove and drown all of the all the lice that might have been there. This is the first plague where it says the magicians could not replicate it. They could not replicate the creation of lice. Why is that? Not really sure. As these plagues are getting more severe, the magicians are suddenly starting to realize this is greater than what we can do. The previous plague of frogs, they were able to replicate that. I always questioned how they were able to do that. If there were frogs throughout the land of Egypt, how do you ever go to a place where there's no frogs and then suddenly you make frogs appear because the frogs were everywhere anyways? Again, probably a sleight of hand. However, with this lice, they could not replicate it. So they go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. So this is divine power. However, they give, they diminish the power of God. This is merely the finger of God. Nothing to worry about too much. That's the way the magicians describe it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart and again does not heed the words. That's our third plague, the plague of lice. Now comes the fourth plague. This one is an interesting one. Because um, as the scripture reads and as it goes through, it talks about flies and it says, let um, let my people go that they may serve me. I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on the people and into your houses. Um, in my scripture, anywhere that it says flies is actually italicized because that does not appear in the original Hebrew text. And I don't know if your translation does that as well. But the Hebrew word for this plague called Arov is called swarms. It just says swarms. It does not say flies in the original scripture. It says swarms. Swarms can represent a whole, a whole manner of different things and different judgments. Um, literal translations will actually say beetles as opposed to flies, which is kind of an interesting theory as well. But what actually, in looking at the legends, so to speak, associated with this plague, it's interesting because you can, I believe you can sometimes find the truth maybe a little bit more closer to the legend or closer to the scientific theory every once in a while with these that some it's not always right down the middle but it's closer to one or the other the fact that our hebrew scripture does not say flies does not give an exact animal but specifically says swarms i believe that this plague was a plague of all manner of creatures and beasts all manner of creatures and beasts to where it could have been wild, uh, wild dogs. It could have been um, uh, every kind of insect you could imagine, from beetles to flies. That it could have been wild beasts, creatures. It was swarms of we don't know what they are. In the future, we're going to have a plague of locusts. So maybe it maybe wasn't necessarily locust, but it was some form of swarm of something else. So that's what's always been fascinating about this. And even a greater legend that I do want to describe that I always found interesting to me. However, it connects to the Haftorah portion of this Torah portion here. The legend is this, is that there was a great beast monster of the river Nile that was also associated with this plague. Interesting idea thought that there's some sort of 
sea creature, a monster of the Nile that's described with tentacles. And anybody who's been in the Navy and have spent any time on the water have heard the sea stories of the Kraken and tentacles and things like that. But there's actually in Judaism and in rabbinical commentaries, there's a description of a monster similar to that in the Nile. Now, you go around the world and you see all different kinds of theories of monsters and creatures. You have one in Loch Ness. You have Ogopogo up in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia. And for that's for my Northwesterners over there. That there's theories about these sea creatures in various places. These have been around for since ancient times. And Judaism has an interesting theory about this, that this was also associated with this plague. Well, if you go with me to Ezekiel chapter 29, which is the Hoth Torah portion for this Torah portion. It's the end of 28 and goes through uh, the majority, all of uh, Ezekiel chapter 29. I want to read here a little bit uh, here from Ezekiel 29, and then you'll kind of hear what I'm saying here. The prophet Ezekiel, this is a prophecy of a future judgment upon Egypt, about a, a destruction or judgment upon Egypt. You can see how it connects to our current door portion that we're talking about the plagues and the judgment of Egypt. So let me read here, here in Ezekiel chapter 29. Um, let's go ahead and start at verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O king of Egypt, O great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers. Who has said my river is my own? I have made it for myself, but I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. And I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness you and all your fish in the rivers, you shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because I have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When you took hold, when they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver. This is a judgment upon the land of Egypt, and it's talking about how the Lord will make himself known to the land of Egypt. Now, the reason why I tie this in to this plague of swarms is because it does talk about how you will become as food for the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens. These swarms could have included birds, kind of like the Alfred Hitchcock movie Birds that some of you may have seen, that this, is, this also could have been a scene associated with this plague. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If we're having, talking about a future judgment upon Egypt, it, we could be describing also a past judgment that took place on Egypt. So we have this reference to a monster that lies in the midst of her rivers. Now, is that, talking about that, is that just another description of Pharaoh who thinks he owns the river? Thinks he is, he, that, that it's through his power that he made for himself the, the river, the river God? Maybe. But we also have this interesting description of a river monster and all of these swarms and, and, and birds and beasts of the field that come upon the judgment of Egypt. So back to our Torah portion here. This plague could have been even greater and more severe than some even the movies describe at times. That these animals came into their houses, destroyed their houses, their belongings, their Egypt, like I said before, at the end of all of these plagues will be in ruins, absolute ruins.
It's one of the interesting things also to keep this in mind in the future study of Torah portions. Whenever it says that the children of Israel are interested in going back to Egypt, that they are, don't want to die in the wilderness, they want to return to Egypt. You have to remember the state of Egypt was in when they left. After all of these plagues, the children of Israel are going to leave Egypt and it will be in utter ruins. Why would you ever want to go back to that place? That is what this judgment took place. This is what, what this is after God making himself known to the Egyptians left the world power, the, the greatest civilization in the world at the known time in ruins and destruction. And this continues on as the plagues continue further that these swarms come and then Pharaoh hardens his heart even again. Let me now get to the fifth plague. And as we go through, I want to try and I do have a conclusion I want to get to. So let's get through some of these other plagues. The fifth plague is the um, the moraine, which is the uh, destruction of the livestock. The Lord speaks to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field. On the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. A very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die and all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing on the land. So the Lord did, did this thing on the next day. All the livestock of Egypt died, but the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israels was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Now, scientifically, if we want to talk about that there could have been a great plague amongst all of the livestock that happened in Egypt that caused the death of all of them, that's one thought. Then how do you describe that the children of Israel and their livestock, not one of them died as well? We're clearly showing, again, the divine hand of God upon these plagues and upon these judgments, making a, a, a distinguishing between the Egyptian livestock and the, the livestock of the children of Israel. The sixth plague, the plague of boils, verse 8 of chapter 9. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. And it will cause boils to break out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace, stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward the heavens. And they caused boils to break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. A couple of things going on here. This is the first time that the plague and the affliction directly affected the bodies of the Egyptians. And you can see that it directly affected the magicians of the land of Egypt. They could no longer stand before Moses. And what you will see here, I believe, as you go through, we will not hear from the magicians again attempting to rep replicate the plagues anymore. Because now the judgment has come upon them upon them, upon their households, directly onto their bodies, that this affliction and this plague and this judgment is now directed right at them. Again, scientifically, the ash caused the sores, whatever it might be. However, um, this is also the, the first time, um, very interesting, when it says, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 
Here on the sixth plague, all of the previous times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, or it says that his heart became hard. However, this is the first time that the Lord himself hardened Pharaoh's heart as he prophesied to Moses that he would do. However, again, God is not through yet. God is not done with enacting the judgment upon the gods of Egypt. Now let me go into the final plague that is described here in our Torah portion for this week, and this is the plague of hail. And it concludes here in Exodus chapter 9. And let me read a little bit more here. Verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. This is early in the morning. So this is at the river Nile that this one is described. Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I stretch out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow at this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down such as has not been not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field for the hail shall come down from on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man, on beast and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I wicked. Entreat the Lord that I may be no more mighty thundering and hail, but it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more, no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out from the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And then the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail and the thunder had ceased, He sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. So here we have the conclusion of our Torah portion and the conclusion of the seventh plague, the plague of hail. 
a little bit of a different change. One thing I want to note is that not all the crops of Egypt were destroyed because there has to be something for the locusts to eat in the next plague at the start of our next Torah portion. But we have this exchange to where Pharaoh became even more deceitful and even more mocking of God to say that he had sinned, that the Lord is righteous, only that his heart would be hardened again. It doesn't say the Lord hardened his heart this time. He did it on the last plague. But this time, Pharaoh did it of himself. Pharaoh caused even more um, caused even more grief, even teasing them to say he would let them go, only to then sin and not let them go. These things are getting progressively worse. The plagues are getting worse, and Pharaoh's reaction to them are getting worse and worse. Now, so as this continues to build, our story will continue next week into uh, just how much worse it gets, and there'll be a lot more things going on there. But one of the things that I do want to describe about this last plague, this plague of hail, it's been described and shown in movies in diff- different ways, that the hail would actually be on fire as it came to earth, or that the, fi- the hail and fire were mingled together. Now, some people say that, oh, it was just lightning. It was a great lightning storm. Well, in the Scripture, there's places where lightning is translated in the Scripture, and it's a different Hebrew word than is what is used here. The word here used is esh, which is fire. It doesn't say lightning. There's another Hebrew word for lightning, but they say it is fire. Some people even say that the hail hit the ground and burned as fire on the ground. What this was, again, this, each of these plagues show some sort of miraculous thing about them. This is not just happenstance. This is the very hand of God doing this. You might be able to explain away livestock dying of a plague. You might be able to explain away frogs, a a great number of frogs coming up out of the water. You might be able to describe a disease going around that's contagious that causes all the boils. And you could describe a hailstorm. However, what you cannot describe is fire mingled with hail. Fire and ice. Ice is cold water. Those two things don't mix. What we are dealing here is we're dealing with the very power of the divine creator of heaven and earth, who has the power to divide between thoughts and intents of the heart, who has the power to know and understand, to walk in spirit and truth, to tip the scales of mercy and justice. That's what we have going on here. We have judgments upon the land of Egypt, and we have mercy and we have justice. Now, God could, in justice, kill all the Egyptians. Send a plague so bad that they're just all of their houses are all of them are dead. Not only are their belongings ruined, not only are their crops lost and their food destroyed, but no, he could he could enact complete total justice upon them. They would deserve it for what they've done to the children of Israel. But we serve a God who also has mercy, and He has the ability to balance mercy and justice in the same way that He can cause hail and fire to exist in the exact same place and time. Us, man, we don't have the ability to do that. We can't do that. Only God can. In the same way that we struggle with our ability to balance mercy and to balance justice. We might see the Egyptians. We might think they deserve this, that, or the other thing. They they deserve the worst possible thing that could happen to them. And we would go too far to one side or the other. Or we could go too far merciful and say, no, they they didn't know. It was ignorant. they, They don't need to be punished. We have the inability as human beings with our minds and our power to truly balance mercy and justice perfectly as it needs to be done. To have just the right amount of mercy, the right amount of justice, we always go too far one side or the other. But the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, who has the power to balance mercy and justice, who has the power to create fire and ice in the same place at the same time, he has the power to balance those things. And he is the God that we serve, that is worth serving, and who he is in the process of making himself known to the world. That is the God that we need to seek after, and that is the God that we are seeking to know. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this Torah portion this week, for the portion of Va'era. We thank you, Lord, for the stories of old and the judgments that took place on the land of Egypt. And Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your mercy upon even your enemies, Lord, that would deserve total and full justice of your power and your hand and your judgment, Father. But still you show mercy to them. Father, we worship you. You are the almighty creator of heaven and earth. It was by your power and your might that you freed the children of Israel, that you enacted these judgments upon Egypt. Father, that only you can balance those things. We worship you, Lord, and we know you alone are the one who did this. Not by scientific explanation, Father. Not by some fantastic legend that someone may have uh, imagined or conjured up, Father, but by your power and your strength, you do these things and you have done these judgments so that you would make yourself known. So, Father, I pray that you'd continue to uh, use your words, your message, this message and these teachings, Lord, to make yourself known to the world. As this portion is taught throughout uh, the world, Lord, this week, Father, I pray that you continue to pour out your spirit, make yourself known to your people and even known to your enemies as well, Father. We worship you, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, with all of your power, Lord. We is not power that we have, Lord, but is your power alone. So we love you, we bless you, and we thank you for giving us your teaching, your instruction, and for all the stories of Moses and the children of Israel. And we look forward to the coming weeks as we continue to learn and know your power, your love, your blessing that you pour out for us, your people, that you call from among the nations. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah timet V'chai olam natabatocheinu Baruch ata Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Yevarecha Adonai Vishmerecha Yae
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Make way before the king.